we're told in Acts 1-8, evangelism is a work of the Holy Spirit. There's this pressure that I have this personal responsibility to save people, to mm-hmm. convert them. And if I'm not racking up the numbers, yeah. Yeah. I'm failing. Right. The key there, I think, is just being willing to be used. Yeah. And so it's not abdicating responsibility completely right. and saying, well, that's God's job. The Spirit lives in us. Mm-hmm. We have that ability through the Spirit yeah. to be able to reach people with the good news. Welcome to the Real Talk Podcast from Real FM. Here's Anson, Kara, and Isaac. Hey, welcome to Real Talk Season 6, Episode 5. My name is Kara, hanging out here with Anson and Isaac. Glad to be back. Hello. Real Talk is a show where we get real about everything from current events to culture to faith. Today, we are going to be talking about all kinds of things, including Isaac sharing the uh, struggle bus this week, setting boundaries between work and home, which I relate to so hard right now. Anson is going to be sharing his good vibes about Animal Crossing, which I have been seeing him play just a little (laughs) bit here and there. Mm -hmm. And finally, the conversation today is all about evangelism. The thing that I love most about the fact that we're going to be discussing evangelism on this episode is that Kara actually brought this idea up <laughs> as a subject to talk about. I did. And yet I think Kara may actually have a meltdown. I might. During the course of this podcast. It might so. actually happen. You guys might have to like call an ambulance or something. We're going so to try to avoid an anxious meltdown on Kara's part or yes. really any of our parts because uh, let's be honest, like evangelism is a hard thing to do. For sure. Yes. And this really kind of came up for us in response to a study by the Barna Group that came out about a year ago that got a lot of attention, Mm -hmm. specifically for one stat where they said almost half of practicing millennial Christians, 47%, say that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And that is a startling statistic for a lot of people because there's this little thing called the Great Commission (laughs) that Jesus gives us in the book of Matthew, right? As he's leaving earth, he tells his apostles the last thing he tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is his final command to the apostles. (laughs) And yet half of us now are saying we think that's wrong, right? Well, I think there's actually a little more nuance to that than that statistic Mm. leads us to believe. Mm -hmm. And we'll get into that a little bit more, but it's certainly something I think we could all say makes a lot of us really uncomfortable. Yeah. And so in true real talk fashion, we're (laughs) going to try to talk about it (laughs) Yep, because that's what we do here. Right. So it is my turn aboard the struggle bus, you guys. I feel like I have very big retired dad energy these days. Like, (laughs) I'll get done with my work day and I'll throw on the jorts and then just stand in the yard like, hmm, well, (laughs) what do I do now? It's been a really weird experience being at home way more often than I normally am. The nature of my job is that I've basically been recording at the studio and then coming home to work on our social media and digital marketing. Uh And it's just been a very, very strange ordeal because... I am at home and I work on social media. So my job is over at some point in the day. Uh huh. And yet where I spend my time is also there. <laughs> so right. it's, it's work confusing. all the time now. Or you just slide right into yeah. the uh, Instagram memes after making your own. Right. Yeah. And just, like yeah. what part of it's work and what part <laughs> it's of it's so play. Bizarre. It's so confusing. Yeah. Oh. And I feel like I'm walking this line between telling myself, okay, dude, you've done like too much today. Mm. Or like the very next day, it'll be like, I have done everything I'm supposed to do today. Why do I feel like I have not done anything? Anything. And it's just this maddening experience. There are times where I wish that I had a tree to chop down. And that was my (laughs) job today where I could like see see when I was done. Uh Like, okay, tree gone. (laughs) We're good. (laughs) But I think I can't be the only person that is struggling with is me being efficient with my job when no one else is there to interrupt me or bother me. Is that a bad thing when I finish Mm. slightly early or I take longer to do it? I can't be happy (laughs) with this situation at all. I feel like patience is required for myself and I have 
even less now than I ever have before. <laughs> it's maddening. Yeah. yeah. I think we all need a little more patience with ourselves. I mean, you have no shortage of things. I think you could probably pick for your struggle bus right now. Yeah, right. Everything yeah. that's going on. Global pandemic. <laughs> <Take> <laughs> your pick, that's right. <laughs> but yeah, this working from home thing for those of us that don't normally do it, mm. it's definitely an adjustment early on, especially you kind of have this idea of like, oh, this is going to be fantastic. I get to wear sweatpants all the time. I don't have to leave my house. I don't, you know, like, yep. this is yeah. going to be great. Like I had a little bit of that. Me too. But I think as you get a few weeks into it, you start to realize what the challenges are that are associated with it as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think you're pointing out one of the big ones, which is the loss of these points of delineation Mm -hmm. between my home life and my work life. Right. Normally you physically move to another space to do work and then you move back to this space to do not work. Right. But when you don't have those points of delineation it all kind of starts to blur together. Right. Mm -hmm. And you do things like take little breaks in the middle of the day to go do something else that's not work related and come back. And it's kind of combining everything. And to some extent that's good. Right. That flexibility is great, but then you have to contend with, am I actually getting the work done that I'm supposed to? Am I not? And all the mental games that come along with that as well. (laughs) Right. Right. Yeah. Do I feel guilty about the way that I'm handling it or not? Or should I be feeling a different way about what I'm doing? Or like, yeah, I I think there's multiple layers to all of that. Yeah, totally. I've had so many conversations with Cody this week about how guilty I feel working from home because I never know, like you say, Isaac, I never know if I'm doing enough. It's weird. I feel like no matter what I'm doing, it's not enough. Whereas yeah. if I was here at work doing that, I would be like, well, okay, but at least I'm at work. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But if I'm at home, I'm, I'm like, goofing off and looking at Facebook or Pinterest. Right. Or yeah. at work, but at least I'm at work at while work. I'm doing it. Come exactly. on. <laughs> I know. It's so lame. But yeah, I'm really struggling with that too. And I read something this week. I think it was John Acuff. Like you said, Anson, there's all these basically triggers in our day that tell our brain and body it's time to go to work. That's yeah. like a commute or putting on your work clothes in the morning. Mm-hmm. And so... Basically, he says you have to redesign your life with new triggers if you work from home. So like I've been making myself get dressed in real clothes in the mornings because your brain says when you put the pajamas on, it's time to relax. Yeah. It's time to work. So like, yeah, it's a struggle. I read something today from this psychiatrist put out a huge Facebook list. I can't find the post now, but it had a thing on there where it was like, we all need to be in a place of just self-acceptance of how Mm. we're dealing with this right now, because this is a global life-changing thing for everybody yeah and you just need to have patience and grace for yourself basically and if you're a psycho like i am like you're either feeling (laughs) guilt or you're feeling guilt over not feeling guilt and that's just kind of where i've been bouncing (laughs) back and forth between just in the last couple of days i've really tried to like slow down and be Mm -hmm. like okay if i had accomplished all of these things at the office i would feel extremely good about that i would reward myself with like hey you've had an insanely productive day that's good so i've started to kind of get there it's been Mm -hmm. a ridiculously (laughs) slow paced change, but we're getting there. I I think you're right though. You do have to give yourself a lot of grace and a lot of patience because not only are you completely changing the way that you work, going from working on site to working at home would be a big, huge adjustment at any time, Mm -hmm. but doing it during this time with all the layers of everything else that's going on in the world adds that much more to it. I think a lot of us have this idea in our heads that like, oh, I'll figure it out or I'll adjust to it or I'll be fine or Mm -hmm. whatever, or or we at least want to place those expectations on ourselves that we will figure it out. And and that makes it harder to give ourselves grace when all of a sudden we're going like, oh, wait, this is harder than I thought. Right. Yeah. So the world seems like it's ending, and we were just discussing. <laughs> There's that. That's, that's the intro. That should just be the intro to everything so, we have for like the next ten that's episodes. That's not my good vibes. That was the preface to my good vibes. But it's true. The world is crazy right now. Yeah. We're all yes. trying to adjust to new realities, and it's enough to make you want to flee to an island that's populated entirely by friendly animals, tend to a little farm, and live out the rest of your life in that's, soothing tranquility. It's oddly and specific. That is exactly what I'm doing. Uh, Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> that is why it is my good vibe for this week. That is the entire premise of a game called Animal Crossing New Horizons, yes. which came out a couple of weeks ago, and which I have spent the majority of my time, other than a little bit of work here and there, and a little bit of family time here and there, <laughs> I'm mostly just tending to my deserted island in Animal Crossing. Right. It's just crazy to me the timing of when this game came out to what is going on in the world. For sure. I mean, mm. this coronavirus stuff happens. It shut in everybody all around the world. And then this video game comes out. 
that has been a popular series for a long time, but all of a sudden has like reached astronomical heights. Yeah. I think largely because of the timing of this. Oh yeah. Where literally what people want right now <laughs> is escapism. Yeah. yeah. Right. I want to go hang out on a deserted island and with cute and animals. Cu- yeah. Like for uh, such a time as this, there yeah. was ever a time when this idea would be popular. <laughs> yeah. It would be right now. So true. This has become a cultural sensation, but I think there is an element of escapism that can be good for us at times. And, mm. and that's why this is my good vibes for this week because obviously games like this or it really anything can certainly become something that's very unhealthy for us very quickly sure. if we're not managing it well but if we're managing it well games like this can also be a really good thing yeah. during the times that we're currently walking through so yeah. if you're not familiar with animal crossing i assume you guys are to some extent yeah yes your a wife plays bit. this game yeah Isaac. Bree is a big farming sim slash life yeah. sim so this kind is of right like, up her alley oh she has been headfirst into it <laughs> Okay. And as for you, Kara, I'm assuming you're a little less familiar. I'm with less that. familiar, but Elizabeth Grace did tell me about it. She That's told right. me that for I remember people that. who don't usually like games to start with that. Yeah, one. she was like, yeah. if you want to get into yeah. games, yeah. start with Animal Crossing, well, which there I it is. totally endorse her view on that, by the way. <laughs> okay. Okay. So if you are like Kara or you don't really know what the whole Animal Crossing yeah. thing is, basically you're a villager and you're transported to a deserted island mm-hmm. to make a new home. And there's this helpful little raccoon looking guy named Tom Nook, (laughs) and he sets you up with a tent and a few fun tasks to complete and promises you that for your efforts, your island can be transformed into a paradise. Right. And so basically the the premise of this game is you're creating your own little paradise on a deserted island. Nice. You build a little town, invite other little villagers to come and live with you, and you harvest fruits and build little bridges and all Aww. sorts of cutesy little things. And and pay back your debt. It's basically a social... I'm getting to that, Isaac. <laughs> it's basically this like social simulator that lets you farm and manage resources. Nice. And on the surface, everything appears to be very delightful. <laughs> and I would argue the game is very delightful, but there are a few people, like Isaac, maybe one of them, who feel slightly differently about some things in the game. One thing that kind of is a little jarring is... After you arrive and you get your tent set up and you're hanging out on the island, Tom Nook, the the little raccoon guy I was talking about, he Uh he shows up and he hands you a few things that you'll need. He gives you a little phone to use on the island and Uh a few other useful tools. And then he says, also, here's your itemized bill. (laughs) Oh! (laughs) Because technically this is like a vacation (laughs) retreat kind of thing that he put on for you. So he wants his payment. Oh, right? no. And so from this point on, you start earning this currency called Bells and Nook Miles. There's a couple different ones. And you start paying <laughs> off the raccoon for all of the things that he's given at you. At the company store. On this island, yes, at the <laughs> company store. Would you like to say a few words about your feelings on Tom Nook and <laughs> I think what he represents? Tom Nook is the game's cute, adorable critique of capitalism and the perpetual <laughs> debt system where he brings you in underpays you and makes it look like you're getting a good deal on proprietary technology that he's created that he could charge you whatever for, but he chooses to have you in this perpetual debt cycle where you're improving his lands where you don't get anything in return of it. Oh, man. Tomnook is a horrible trash dog. (laughs) I don't like him. If you would like to discuss this with Isaac further, I'm sure he'd be happy to uh, sit down virtually over a cup of coffee. Twitter is at Isaac, E-Y-E-Z-A-H-K. Tweet him about Uh, Tomnook. You guys can have lots of conversations. Yeah. Uh, Beyond that, though, there's actually been some like really cute things that people have been recreating in this game. Uh Because one of the things you can do is you can visit the islands of other players Mm -hmm. online. So there are some like social interaction elements that are especially interesting right now, given our current environment where we're supposed to be social distancing. Right. Yeah. So some players have even used the game to create real life experiences like weddings. And get together some things like represent this kind of stuff. Yeah, in the game, I saw a group of like ten people because you're not supposed to have ten people in a group right now. Yeah, that got together and played a game of musical chairs on an island. They played like music and went around in circles and sat on the chairs and yeah. So there's all sorts of fun stuff about the game as well. And honestly, I think it's just one of those things where it's like this positive, engaging escape that I think helps people cope during times like this for sure. And video games at their best have been that for me in my life. Like when I'm, I'm feeling overwhelmed by what's around me, it gives me even just half an hour here or there to kind of get lost in another world, another environment where I can forget and kind of turn my mind off with all the stuff that's happening in the world. And think about raccoons and collecting <laughs> apples and building bridges, the ills of capitalism, or whatever, yeah. <laughs> being slowly radicalized. 
But that's what this game does for me right now is it's an opportunity to step away from all that stuff and turn my brain off. That's for a few so minutes. good. And whether it's Animal Crossing or something else, I think we kind of all need that right yeah, now. Yeah, for sure. And, for and sure. that's the good vibes element of this for me is you got to find your thing yeah. where you can get away from everything else that's happening in the world yeah. and shut the brain off and just enjoy a hobby or whatever yes. for a few minutes at a time. The flip side of that is we can feel very guilty about doing that, right? Yeah. Like, is it okay yeah. for us to indulge in escapism when there's all this important stuff going on in the world? Mm. And my answer to that is a resounding yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely okay. Mm. Does it mean that we should escape completely and never engage with the world again? No. Of course not. Mm. Occasional escapes into... Yeah. Something else that, yeah. that lets you get away from the stress and anxiety that's kind of building all around us. Yeah. That's a really healthy thing. Yeah, I love that. So this week it's my turn to go on the record and I'm talking with David Dunn, whose new song we just started playing, Yes and No. David, how are you? I am great. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing good. Super excited to be able to talk to you. Dig it. So how are you and your family doing in the COVID stuff? Are you in a place where you're having to shelter in place? I don't remember where you guys live. Yeah, we're in in Nashville. So how long has that been like that for you guys? Just for a few weeks or... Um, it's been like that. I don't even know. Now. <laughs> 10 years. Um, yeah. Like 10, maybe 15. Who knows? <laughs> Doing pretty good. I'm on the road a ton normally. And especially now I would be because we just released a record, you know, like a couple weeks ago. And so normally I would be road dogging like tons of shows right now. And, and basically everything that I had set up for like the next six months is canceled. Oh, so oh man. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's the way it goes. So what does your work look like? Shifting and readjusting in that, that's got to be super hard. It it is, to be frank with you, here's how I kind of view my music. It's the main thing that I care about and I'm passionate about, but it is not necessarily the financial driver for my existence. Mm. I I went to school for engineering, petroleum engineering. And so one of the the big things that I decided when I chose to do music over engineering was to devalue how important making money was to me, right? Hmm. Because if it was a higher priority than it needed to be, I would be miserable doing music because the the facts of the matter, like you just can't make a ton of money playing music. So it's less of like the financial strain, which that is still a thing, but it's less of the financial strain and, and more of like, the feedback that actually means something to me comes from live shows. Mm. Um, you know, the internet, when when people talk about how much a song means or an album or, or how impactful it is, it doesn't feel real to me. I yeah. think this is because I'm a millennial, but I, I just, mm. I do like an 85% discount on anything that anybody sends me over the internet. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, playing live shows and watching people respond to things mm. is... It's the reason I keep doing this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's those are the moments to where it feels like I'm no longer in my own vacuum and and just creating this art on my own. I go, oh my gosh, this is really worthwhile. Mm. And so and so that being gone is leaving me in a weird emotional state. So what what's been a helpful coping mechanism for you? Oh, um, what have I been doing to cope? (laughs) Um, I'll just tell you about this last week. Sure. Mostly what I've been doing is absorbing myself in the stock market and my taxes. So those are the two (laughs) things that have been keeping me incredibly busy. My wife's family is all here Mm. when this whole thing started happening. My my mother-in-law and my my brother-in-law and his wife and his two kids. So there is a a giant amount of people in my house right now. Oh, they're all in your house. Oh my goodness. Yep. Yeah. Wow. There has been plenty of distractions. And you have a little boy as well, right? I I almost have two little boys. Oh my goodness. My oldest will turn two in May and the newbie will arrive at the end of May. How exciting. What has surprised you the most about being a dad? Um, I feel like I was pretty prepared. That being said, I, I think it has still been the most difficult adjustment of my entire life. Because, you know, I waited until I was 32 before I had a kid. um, And I waited until I was 
31 to get married. Yep. And up until that point, I very much enjoyed my independence. Me and my wife dated for five years because of it. She's very similar. Yeah. So we, yeah. We really like our own space. Yeah. And pre-kids going to movies five nights a week. And <laughs> yeah. Um, the adjustment of of flipping from this is my life to mm. now my life belongs to two other people has been really, really difficult. It's been incredibly rewarding. And I, and I know it's, it's mm. the value level of that shift is incredible, but it has been rewardingly painful. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I appreciate your honesty in that. I can very much relate. I got married just, let's see, it's been like a year and a half at 32. So nice. congrats. Yeah, thank you. So I'm very much in that same realm because it is different when you're older and you're very used to your independence like you said switching over questions about your music tell me about your current single which we just started playing recently yes and no yeah that is pretty much almost exactly in the vein that we're already in it is acknowledging that we have a father in heaven who loves and wants the best for us and so when we ask him for things he doesn't necessarily give us what we want. Mm. He gives us the thing that actually brings us life, the best thing for us, like fathers do with their children. Mm. A, a good example of this is my kid desperately wants to go play in the in the street in mm. our front yard. Yeah. And I have to continue to tell him, no, he can't go out in the street. And to him, from his perspective, it looks like dad is trying to ruin everything. Yes. It's still all the fun. Aww. But really, really what I want is for him not to get hit by a car. Aww. And I think that's how the Father in Heaven does on, on a bigger scale for us, is that we can't actually see that the thing that we want is to go play in the street and, and probably get hit by a car. Mm. And God, who is a loving father, standing upstairs going, don't do that. Like, that's not, <laughs> what you, that's not what you want. Like, it's what you want, but it's not what you need. Yes. And so, and so yes and no is acknowledging that, that God's yes and his no always are pointed in the same direction. Mm. That is a hard message to kind of wrap your head around sometimes when, yeah. especially when you're going through stuff that just doesn't feel good. And that, yeah, that's the hard part is telling somebody who's in the middle of something awful. Yeah. Hey, this is, this is really going to be better. Like mm. nobody believes that when they're in the middle of it, your feelings are screaming at you. This is awful. This is the worst. And, and that's where perspective comes into play. You know, the worst year of my life up until this year, probably, this is probably going to be the worst year. No, it already Aww. is. But up until, up until this year, uh -huh. the worst year of my life in hindsight now was, was probably the best year of my life. It was the most transformative year I'd ever spent. And while I was in the middle of it, I was going, this is stupid. <laughs> Everything about this is the worst. Yep. Why did I put myself in this scenario? Lord, yep. why did you put me here? Oh, right. Man. That was sort of my perspective. And so in hindsight a lot of times things become clear. Yeah. Sometimes they don't though. And that's, that's true. That's even harder is that like you get through something that's awful and you look back and you go, it doesn't make any sense still. Lord, yeah. what in the heck were you doing? Yeah. That's, that's when faith comes in. Yeah. Question about your performance style. It's very unique. It's just you and one other person most of the time. And y'all sound like you're a full band up there. It's just very unique. And I'm just curious, how did that evolve or come about? Yeah, that is mostly how I travel with me and one other dude. I'd say this is the starting point. Three or four years ago now, I was on tour with Unspoken. And uh, what I was doing at the time was I was playing with the drummer and a, and a couple of the live players. And uh, the drummer pretty much last minute bailed. Oh, man. It was like, oh, I can't come. And so I spent like a day and a half after I found out trying to figure out how to make a live show without a, without a drummer. And basically what I ended up doing in that show was playing the drums myself electronically. And I had so much fun doing it during that show that I think that was sort of the spur is to go like, Hey, I don't have any live drums in my music anyway. Like I haven't recorded live drums in years. I don't really like them. Yeah. I, I just do it for energy's sake during live shows. But what if I can like, nuke the drums and, and sort of go electronic, which is what I actually sort of am. I'm, I'm a yeah. I'm more of a, um, electronic artist. And that was sort of the beginning. And now we, we sit up on stage and, and me and one of the guy with a whole bunch of equipment and computers. And, you know, it's sort of like being in the studio while we're up on stage, we're sort of creating electronically this wall of sound. So every show we play, 
almost every one of them, it, it ends up being different because we're sort of hmm. building our computers back and forth on the fly. That's so, so cool. <laughs> so I probably, I actually will never go back to playing normal shows ever again. Yeah. Because it's so much more fun to do what I've been doing for the last three years. So it, it is, it is a blast. It sounds fun. And it's really fun to watch. Like I can say from being at your shows, it's, it's a lot of fun to experience as well. And the energy is just really great. That's oh, cool. Thanks. Last random question. What is your favorite guilty pleasure? Favorite guilty pleasure. <laughs> Oof, I haven't released this knowledge publicly. But I'm going go <laughs> to step out on a limb. All right, all right. And, and I'm going to blame my wife for okay. this because she started this and now I am hooked. <laughs> That's fair. I am now a full-fledged addict to The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. That's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the best, worst TV show <laughs> that has ever been made in yes. the history of television. Oh my and, goodness. And I cannot get enough. And every new season will come out. My wife will be like, new season of The Bachelor. And I'll be like, no. <laughs> not this I am time. I'm not watching another season of that. It's the worst show I've ever seen in my life. And then inevitably, <laughs> she'll make me watch the first episode. And then I'm hooked. And you can't stop. Are y'all on the Tiger King train? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. We already, we finished all the Tiger Kings yeah. already. Yeah, we finished them last night. And I was not interested at all in watching these. And watch the first episode. And of course you can't stop. It's the train wreck you can't look away from. So yeah, yeah. I say, I cannot believe that those were real people. That was, like, I know. <laughs> and that's what I do with the bachelor too. Honestly, I go, these people aren't real. Like, no, these people don't exist. Nobody actually does this in real life. Right. No one is this extreme, right? No one's no this one crazy. He would disagree. <laughs> yes. He would disagree. Now it is time for the conversation. As we said, talking about evangelism on this episode. And the big headline is a study from Barna last year that found almost half of practicing millennial Christians, 47% of them, say that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. I'm curious, when you guys mm -hmm. heard that stat, what was your reaction? I was surprised. Yeah. I was surprised. I was a little bit like, oh, that's bad. But then I was like, well, when was the last time mm. I actually like, yeah. shared Jesus with someone? Maybe well, I'm. That's fair. Yeah. You know, it was a little bit. I wonder what the number would be if they asked how many people actually do it, not right. just what you think of it. Yeah. The number exactly. may have been much higher. <laughs> much higher. Yeah. For me, it was, yeah, it checks out. My view of evangelism when I heard this, like, I pictured like, the megaphone on the street corner kind of thing. So I was like, yeah, that makes sense that no one's doing that. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of this really could be predicated on your definition of evangelism, yeah, right? Yeah, like what do sure. you think of when you think of evangelizing? I think one other thing that is really important to share here, a lot of articles started using the headline when this study came out, 47% of millennial Christians think evangelizing is wrong. Uh -huh. That's not actually what this says. Yeah. It says they think it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes mm. that they will one day share the same faith. So they're specifically talking about sharing this with another person of faith of a different faith. Right. And I do think that is an important distinction just statistically. Right. That number may have been different if you were talking about someone who is a religious, for mm, example. That's true. There are some other interesting findings that go along with this from the Sparna study. 65% of Christian millennials believe that people today are more likely than in the past to take offense if mm. they share their faith. So a majority of millennial Christians, probably it's fair to say nervous about the idea of people taking offense to what they have to say sure. if they evangelize. Which, that makes sense to me. We're such a culture where like most of our dialogue every day is held oh. online. So on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, mm -hmm. and like there's nothing you can say on Twitter where someone isn't offended. Yeah, so right. That checks out to me that like you're probably going to be more sensitive to that. And the true. other part of this that plays into it as well is what we think about when people disagree with us. So yeah. millennials they found are also either two times compared to Gen X or three times more likely compared to boomers than any other generational group to believe that disagreement equals judgment. Yeah. Right. Mm. And so when someone disagrees with us, we don't just look at it as, oh, you know, agree to disagree. 
disagree. Yeah. We think, no, I'm being actively judged right. for what I believe because mm. you don't agree with me. So we take that far more personally. Yeah. And we probably understand that other people will take evangelizing far more personally if they don't agree with us. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A few other findings just real quickly. Uh, Barna found practicing millennial Christians to be no less likely than other generations to say that part of their faith means being a witness for Jesus. Hmm. 97% said, yes, a part of my faith means being a witness for Jesus. Similar numbers, 95% say the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. Hmm. So the vast majority saying that that's the case, 86% of Christian millennials say they know how to respond when someone raises questions about their faith. Hmm. which I thought was a very high number in my mind. 73% said I am gifted at sharing my faith with other people. <laughs> wow. So 73% said they're gifted. That's at a it, high number. And yet half of them are saying, saying they're not that doing it. Saying that it's wrong. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Not that, that they're not wrong. doing it, saying that it's wrong. Yeah. Huh. So some really interesting numbers there. Practicing millennial Christians overwhelmingly saying, yes, being a witness for Jesus is part of my faith. I want people to know Jesus. I am even good at sharing Jesus with others, Yeah, but half of them saying sharing with people of a different faith is inappropriate. So I think really, as you hone in on those statistics, it's not so much that we're saying, I don't think that Jesus is important or I don't think it means much or I'm not compelled to share my faith for those reasons. It really seems to be much more predicated on that concern about causing offense, Mm -hmm. being judged. Those really seem to be some of the primary concerns kind of based Mm. on these statistics. So some interesting context in terms of statistics for our discussion. I think the other piece of context that would be really interesting to share is kind of just our own personal experiences Mm. when it comes to evangelism and what we were taught, all three of us having grown up in the church, Mm -hmm. about appropriate ways to evangelize or to not evangelize. So what did that look like just briefly in your own lives? So for me, I definitely grew up knowing it was super important and feeling a certain amount of pressure to Mm -hmm. kind of make it happen. Some of that is self-inflicted, let's just be honest, because I do that with a lot of things. And so I have a lot of anxiety around this subject because I was talked about so much that I remember sitting in a car in a parking lot. My mom's like in the store. I'm sitting there waiting. Some random stranger would just walk by and I'd start to panic. Like, am I supposed to get out of the car and share Jesus with them right now? I was constantly in that space of anxiety and not in a, oh, I'll share the good news with them, but in the like, I have to do this or if I don't, God's going to be upset with me. So that's an experience from younger days. And then even as a young adult working with a youth group on a mission trip to another country, we had these little tracks that looked like money. And the gospel presentation was written on there in Spanish, but there are these little tracks. And so we're on an airplane and I'm sitting next to the most enthusiastic one in the entire group (laughs) who's like, we got to do this. We got to do this. We got to do this. And I was like, okay, you're making me really nervous. So there's a gentleman sitting next to us on the plane who obviously doesn't speak English and she decides I'm going to do it. I'm going to hand him this thing before we, I was like, okay. And so she hands him this tract that looks like money that's fake money Mm -hmm. and he just looks at it and looks at her and says you know like no entiendo I don't understand and so she's like oh okay takes it back like he hands it back to her and I'm just like this is bad this is bad this is bad (laughs) like this does not feel like how this is supposed to go yeah obviously we have no ability to actually have a conversation with him no relationship and so there's just this super awkward exchange and then now what so that's kind of what happens in my head when I think about evangelism I start to panic a little bit and think oh this is really awkward and I don't know how to handle it. (laughs) So I'm thinking back to a specific four week course in my youth group where (laughs) I can't remember specifically what it was called, but it was the apologetics course with Kurt Cameron and Ray Comfort. And it was like (laughs) how to debate Jesus with people. Like you can, it's basically like, how to use these logical Zingers. traps to get people into admitting they're scared of hell. Yeah, and I remember yeah. doing that. And even in the moment, I can remember being like, the only motivation we have here is pain aversion. And that feels wrong. I don't know how you can build a good relationship on scaring people. And that was mm-hmm. kind of what it felt like to me. Yeah. You have one shot at getting through to people with these mm. logical arguments or they're like doomed. That just felt like so much pressure at 17 and 18 that I did not want. So I didn't do it. So that was kind of my impression with it. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. There was a speaker that came to a spiritual development week. I went to a Christian school in high school and his name was Mark Cahill. He's a former basketball player at Auburn University. And he wrote a book called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. Oh, yeah. And it's uh, did you read the book? No, but I'm familiar with it. it, Okay. So one thing you can't do in heaven. 
witness, yeah. right? Because everyone in heaven is already saved. And so he is incredibly passionate about evangelism and yeah. sharing the gospel. He came and he starts his talks by doing this thing where he snaps, right? And he talks about every second someone somewhere on earth is dying Ugh. and where are they going to end up? And so he's trying to create this sense of urgency about sharing the gospel. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I see the pained ah, looks the on horror. both of your faces. <laughs> and I think there is a certain amount of that, that it sounds like from your guys's experience, we're pushing back against in many ways as yeah. millennial Christians. Yeah. And I think some of this research from the Barna group is showing that with this kind of saying, I don't know that this up in your face style mm -hmm. of confrontational evangelism is something that I really jive with. Right. Yeah. At the same time, I think if we really kind of closely examine the way that we reacted, we've swung all the way then to the other side of the spectrum. Now where we're having 50% of us say that the very act of sharing the gospel at all yeah. with someone of another faith is wrong. Yeah. And so is that an overreaction potentially? And that's something mm -hmm. I kind of want to discuss as we kind of go throughout the rest of our conversation here. Mm -hmm. So let's get into first why evangelism matters, because mm. at the top of the show, I read to you guys the Great Commission, right? From Matthew 28, Jesus tells us it's a command, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching right. them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Mm -hmm. So this is something that we're told pretty explicitly by Jesus. And if you take the assumption that scripture is the inspired word of God and that we are to, as Christians, obey what Jesus commanded, that doesn't leave a lot of wiggle room right. in mm. my view about the yeah. necessity of evangelism. Right. Yeah. Mm. And so we're not necessarily going to argue here that you shouldn't evangelize, but if we're going to make the argument that we should, we have to understand why, yeah. why it matters. Why is evangelism important and why at the same time, are we having a hard time doing this? Yeah. Why yeah, is it so yeah. difficult for us? Right. So I've come up with a few different points that I want to discuss with you guys. The first one we've already discussed a little bit. Millennials just seem to be more sensitive to people taking offense to evangelism mm -hmm. and we're more likely to equate disagreement with judgment. And in some cases, in some ways, this sensitivity is really good. One of the main criticisms that you guys seem to be sharing about the approaches to evangelism that you grew up with is that they weren't sensitive at all. Yeah. Right. Sensitivity yeah. was thrown out the window yeah. in favor of boldness. Yeah. And now all of a sudden you're kind of running over people with the gospel yeah. and how effective is that really? Yeah. Not very, not very <laughs> effective in my experience. Yeah. 0% in mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The thing about this is I feel like there's a, a, but attached to this, right? right? Where we go, okay, yeah, this running over people with the gospel maybe isn't the best way to go about it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, if we are so sensitive to any sort of disagreement or judgment, mm. will we ever share the gospel? Yeah. I Probably mean, not. It only takes a cursory glance for me on like Twitter, for example, to see that there is a lot of really abject hatred, frankly, for Christians yeah. from yes. a lot of circles. And so as soon as you even say to someone, I am a Christian, even if you didn't offer it, if it got kind of like forced out of you, yeah. you're probably going to face some judgment. And you may offend people just by the nature of what you believe, even yeah. if you haven't proselytized at all. There's a hilarious joke arc on Silicon Valley where someone gets quote unquote outed as a Christian in the tech <laughs> circle and everyone is like, no, don't tell people I'm a Christian. He was like worried that people right. would not do business with him. And he was right. People didn't want him around oh, because they wow. were, there's like this connotation of Christians are bad people and they're judgy and stuff. So they were like, why did you tell them? And he was so upset about it. And right. Just, so we go to the point from saying, yeah. well, <laughs> it's really difficult for me to like witness to people all the way to like almost denying Christ. Right? Yeah. And yeah. I don't even want people to know who I am or what I believe yeah. because of the offense that it's going to cause people. The thing is, Jesus was really clear that this was going to happen. In Luke 6, 22, he says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of me. Yeah. Right. Or in John 15, they will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. Matthew 10, 22, you will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Yeah. So he's very explicit about this is going to happen. You're going right. to be judged. Yeah. And I think probably all of us have experienced that at some level or another, yeah. not maybe to the extent of many other Christians around the globe who are actually really, truly persecuted yeah. for their beliefs. Yeah. But certainly judgment, yeah. sideways glances, <laughs> disapproval. Yeah. 
that is all part of this, right? And let's just be honest, like that sucks. No one likes Nobody that. Nobody likes that. <laughs> right. Yeah. No one likes to feel judged and ostracized. No. And and so the fact that that comes along with the territory and evangelism, mm-hmm. I think is a major factor in us not really wanting to participate in it anymore. Right. Oh, absolutely. And and I think too, part of it for me is in my head, in order to effectively share Jesus with someone, I need to have a relationship where there's like mutual respect. Right. Mm-hmm. So maybe I take that a little too far, though, and think, well, if they don't like me, if they disapprove of me, then they won't listen. So I have to make sure mm. that they like me in order to mm-hmm. like share this. But that's not necessarily a real thing. That's probably more about me hating rejection than it is about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it feels counterintuitive to me to think that if I do my best to behave as Jesus did, I would lose friends over that. Mm. But increasingly, as you think about it and as you read about Jesus's life, that makes sense because radically loving people and going out of your way to be around sort of marginalized people, like people are going to be uncomfortable with that. There's going to be some rub there from somebody. I mean, if we look at the life of Jesus, yeah, he ended up getting killed right. for the life that he lived, right? Even though he did nothing wrong, he mm. clearly ruffled a lot of feathers Yeah, led to his death. So I think when we have this idea that being like Christ just means getting along with everyone and never offending anyone, that's not what he did. Not at all. And it's not necessarily what we're called to either. So I think we definitely can kind of overdo it on on the sensitivity point there. Another thing that is really important in this discussion about why evangelism matters is another interesting stat that comes from the Barna Group. Millennial Christians increasingly do not actually believe in the existence of hell. Over the last 20 years, the number of Americans who believe in the existence of hell has dropped from 71% to 58%. Interestingly, heaven, by contrast, fares much better among Christians and remains an almost universally accepted concept. Heaven's polling great. Yep. So, <laughs> heaven is polling great. 99% of Christians believe that heaven is a thing Look at that. compared to 58% of Christians believing hell is a thing. Hmm. Why is this? I feel like it's kind of another duh thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. you know? who who likes talking about the doctrine of hell? Like, yeah. is that comfortable? Is there no. any? I mean, again, maybe <laughs> there's a couple crazy people out there who love standing on street corners and yelling about it. No. But yeah. the vast majority of us, this is not a doctrine that we feel comfortable talking about, right? No. The thing is, and the thing I keep coming back to, uh, that maybe kind of the repeating theme of this episode for me is that Jesus talks about it a lot. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't even know that I realized this until I've been listening to an audio Bible uh, as I've been exercising lately and I've been going through Matthew. Jesus talks about hell and judgment a lot in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Harsh. Matthew 13, 40, as the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. They will throw them into a blazing furnace and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Harsh. He does this multiple times in these parables, right? The parable of the wedding banquet. He's Mm. giving these examples of what the kingdom of God will look like in eternity, right? The king told the attendants at the end, this uh, person that came in without wearing the wedding clothes, Mm. tie him hand and foot, throw him out into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are invited, few are chosen. He talks about this to an uncomfortable degree, if I can be very honest. And so this is not a doctrine that I enjoy learning about or talking about and certainly would not feel comfortable talking about this to just random people. Right. And for very good reason, like you talked about Isaac, this concept of fire insurance, right? That like the primary reason Mm -hmm. that we should be saving people is to keep them from eternal damnation and scare them into becoming Christians. Right. Right. And that's something you've already described as being deeply uncomfortable with. And I think for good reason. Yeah. And I think that one segment of Christianity has had this boldness, right? That same segment of people sort of overlaps with the people who are preaching fire insurance. The fire insurance crowd has gotten really bold at, well, you need to repent now and turn around or you're going to spend forever on fire. Right. (laughs) And I feel like that's why there has been kind of this shift towards, well, let's maybe not talk about it among a certain group of people, because like Hmm. the only people who have been talking about it really loud have been only talking about hell. And that makes me uncomfortable. And I don't want to do either of that. So we've kind of done Hmm. this overcorrection from that. And I think I can understand that to a degree because I feel like in my personal life, I have had to rework my relationship with Christ because the first go around, it was based entirely upon that hell aversion thing. You would not want someone to stay in a relationship 
if they told you, well, if I if I leave or if I have a doubt, this person's going to kill me like you'd be like, no, that's terrible. Don't be there. And I think that that was kind of what my relationship with Christ was. It was like, I don't really even know what I think, but I'm only in this because I don't want to go to hell. Right. Mm. Nothing should be built only on that. Like that is an important part that you do have to wrestle with and think through. I think everyone should really Mm -hmm. study Matthew and understand where they fall on that. That's huge. That's a big part of that. But I think that you can't just make your entire relationship on hell or your entire basis for ministry and evangelism just only on hell. Yeah. There's a quote from John Piper that I actually kind of appreciate where he says missions exists because worship does not. Mm. In other words, there would be no need to save people or witness to people if everyone was already in a relationship with Jesus, if everyone was already worshiping God. Mm. Right. And so the ultimate point of evangelism is not just to save people, it's to get them into a relationship with God so that they can worship God. Mm. So it's, it's an important distinction. I think we're not saving people to keep them out of hell. We're saving people to get them into a relationship with God. And that's a a, big difference. Actually, it's not a one and done thing. You get someone saved and you get to check them off their list and they're okay forever. Right. You form a relationship with that person and their relationship. with A relationship with God is not a one time event. No, it's it's something that has a beginning, but it's, It's also not something that is one and done for sure. Mm. And so I I think we have to understand where like the doctrine of hell fits into this, that it's not just about fire insurance. And yet I also think at the same time, it's important for us to wrestle with these tough concepts and understand them, because if we don't understand them or we just reject them Mm. on the basis of being uncomfortable or difficult, in some ways it does kind of take away some of the sense of urgency Mm. for why evangelism matters. Let's move on to a third point. This is just a personal opinion of mine. I'm curious to know if you guys agree. I think our church culture has this unfortunate byproduct of creating this idea that the Christian life is almost kind of a spectator sport. Mm -hmm. And I think this is often unintentionally reinforced by the way that we do church Mm -hmm. in Western culture, Mm -hmm. where we show up to a big auditorium that kind of looks like a theater (laughs) and we sit out in the audience in a nice chair back seat yeah. and we stand for the concert portion. I mean, worship portion <laughs> hey. of the oh. service. Right. And, yes. and we sing and then we sit down and we listen to a speaker yeah. and then maybe we put some money in a plate and we go home. Yeah. And, and it kind of feels very much like this spectator thing as opposed yeah. to a participatory thing. Yeah. But I think if we read carefully the words of Peter in first Peter two, nine, He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession Mm. that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Mm. So we are not just spectators watching the ministers do their thing up on stage. We're told that, no, we are ministers of the gospel ourselves. And I think we could take this spectator sport attitude that we have in church sometimes and apply it to evangelism Mm. where we say, okay, well, maybe I have a responsibility to invite someone to church mm-hmm. and then, and then the preacher will tell them about the good news and right. about the gospel and then yeah. they can hear it that way. Right. Mm. Or I can be a good person and maybe people will then ask me what's different about you. And then I can say, Oh yeah, come to church with me and you can experience. Like, yeah. But that, it's kind that, of this- there, that one is like the most used thing ever. Like yeah. they'll see something different in you. And I'm like, right. no, they don't. <laughs> Everyone's nice. Like everyone is nice to a degree. Yeah. No. You are an outcast. If you're not nice in society, like that's, that's true. You're, beha- you're not cutting people off in traffic. No one's going to go like, I'm going to follow this guy to church. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't cut me off. I think that's a fair point. Such a cop out. I do think there are some things about living the Christian life that can be kind of countercultural that people could notice. Yes. But I also agree with you very much so that we use it as a cop out. Opening right? the door at Chick-fil-A <laughs> is not going to get people like asking you what's different. About I agree. You. Right. That's amazing. And so I think in some ways, because of this kind of spectator approach yeah. that we take to our faith, mm-hmm. we, it kind of allows us to abdicate some level of personal responsibility yeah. for being yeah. involved or being used by God in evangelism. Yeah. We say, well, it's up to God. That's true. It's up to the spirit to reach people and draw them to him. But he also works through us personally at times. And we can't abdicate that responsibility and just say, 
well, that's my pastor's job. Yeah. That's for people that are way more qualified than I am. Right. Well, I think that's, it goes back to what you were talking about earlier, Isaac, that part of the reason I think this spectator thing is a thing is because we don't feel qualified. We feel like I am not the one who should be doing this. Yeah. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. We have professional Christians. They're the ones on the stage. And so we're like, well, I'll bring the people and like the professionals, professionals will do, right. do the things. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to do that. So I'll let the professionals handle that is kind of how it feels. So it comes from this feeling of like insecurity, maybe and inferiority, but that doesn't mean it's okay. Yeah. One last thing I think that kind of informs why evangelism matters is these differing definitions of what evangelism actually is. And we kind of hinted at this off the very top of the Mm -hmm, show, mm -hmm. this idea that if people are saying evangelism is wrong, how are they defining evangelism? What does that mean to them? Like Isaac mentioned, the first thing that popped into his mind is distributing tracks and maybe yelling at people on a street corner with a (laughs) megaphone. Always yelling. So what (laughs) is evangelism actually? What does that actually Mm -hmm. look like? I think that's a really important component for us to understand well, because if we just think of evangelism is yelling, you're all going to burn on a street corner. <laughs> yeah. Then not- sure. All of a sudden the number of people who would say, yeah, that's not the right, right way to go about it is going to climb up pretty dramatically. Right? Yeah, right. exactly. That is such a good point because like you said, there's this pendulum swing between thinking evangelism is just yelling at people. Mm-hmm. But then our idea of evangelism on the opposite side is like you said earlier, Isaac, just, well, just be nice and yeah, people right. will know. It's this whole truth and love concept, yeah, right? We talk yeah. about sharing the truth and love. Yeah, There are two components in that phrase, <laughs> truth and love. Yeah. And anytime we try to omit one, yeah. things go off the rails really quickly. And so I think that approach that we grew up with was starting to omit the love part mm, a little yeah. bit. We're so focused on the truth. We want to hammer that into people. We must share God's truth with people. Yeah. And I think we've rightly struck back against that and said, no, you can't forget this part of the equation. Yeah. But as we've done that, we've almost maybe yes. in some cases gone a little too far and we've said, well, it's just all love and no truth. Right. These Ugh. things both still have to exist side by side. They it's a do. both and equation. The challenge is both and is a lot trickier to do than either or. Yeah. Either or is a lot easier. Mm-hmm. If we just say it's all love or it's all truth, like It's not comfortable, at least to me, but standing on a street corner and just yelling is not that hard. It's a lot harder to love people with the truth all at the same time compared Mm. to just yelling at people or just saying, yeah, anything you believe is good with me. It all goes with me and I don't disagree with anyone ever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're taking the easy way out, I think, with both of those approaches. I think that one of the best examples of practical but effective true evangelism was shout out to Scott. He's our data guy Mm -hmm. at the (laughs) station. He invited me multiple times to his men's group, but I went (laughs) and there was a bunch of really great guys, way older than I am. Mm -hmm. Really, really smart, really great caring, loving guys. Mm -hmm. And I got to see this sort of little microcosm of church happening there Mm -hmm. every week. And that felt really good. It wasn't pressure, but it definitely was an invitation to join this community. No questions about where I personally was as sort of like a predetermining factor in whether or not I could go. It was like, Mm -hmm. come in, hang out with us. Let's talk. And I think that that's my ideal for how I want to go about evangelism Mm -hmm. now and not necessarily the street corner shouting, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but just kind of like this wherever you're at, let's just open up a dialogue. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's a great place to start. So let's kind of keep that conversation going then. We've talked obviously a lot about the struggles of Mm -hmm. why evangelism is hard. So if we accept the fact that evangelism is something that we're called to do, that leads us to kind of the final question, what should it look like? And you kind of just laid that out for us, Isaac, but let's get specific into specific attributes of evangelism and what that should be like. I think one thing that's really important to note right off the bat is we're told in Acts 1-8 that evangelism is a work of the Holy Spirit. Mm. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. I think sometimes there's this pressure, but I think you kind of alluded to earlier, Kara, that I have this personal responsibility to save people, to Mm -hmm. convert them. And if I'm not racking up the numbers, I'm failing. Right. And that's, I mean, we talked about like the doctrine of hell and all these things, like that's a big weight and responsibility to carry around if you feel like you're a failure in this area. Especially when you're like 13 years old, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's such a good point and something that takes tremendous pressure off to say, all right, God, you've asked me to do this, but I cannot do this on my own. I'm Mm -hmm. just a human. Mm -hmm. I'd screw this up all the time. So inviting the spirit to come in and work. And and I think prayer is supposed to be a big 
yeah. part of evangelism because of that, mm-hmm. like acknowledging I can't change somebody's heart. I can't. Right. And that's really what evangelism is about, right? I can't do that. So I need to be in partnership with the spirit and not thinking this is all up to me. Right. Yeah. The key there, I think, is just being willing to be used by right. God. Right. Yeah. And so it's not about abdicating responsibility completely right. and saying, well, I don't have to ever do anything because that's God's job. We have to be willing to be used by the spirit. But yeah. The spirit lives in us. And so Mm -hmm. we have that ability through the spirit to be able to reach people with the good news. Yeah. Anytime I get wrapped up in my imperfections and worry that I'm not good enough to share Jesus, I think about David. (laughs) So, (laughs) so grateful for David in the Bible. Just all of the screw ups and the royal, (laughs) just like horrible. Hot mess. Yeah. Just a hot (laughs) mess of a person. And I'm like, okay, well, if God can pick that, (laughs) maybe I'm I'm worthy of sharing some Jesus too. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the other things that's really (laughs) important on this topic of what evangelism Evangelism should look like is something that Isaac brought up a little bit earlier in the show, which is example and exhortation mm. both matter. Yeah. This is another one of those both ands yep. as opposed to an either or. We could just hold the door for people at Chick-fil-A <laughs> all day long. <laughs> to be yep. so much easier. And that's not yep. necessarily going to move the needle, right? We also occasionally have to speak up and yeah. say what we believe, who we are, mm-hmm. and why. We're told that we have to be able to give a defense of what we believe, but doing so in love, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so this is, again, one of those tricky things where we have to find the right mix. It's not even really a balance between the two. It's, it's a mix of both of them together right? of saying, yes, I can't just yell on a street corner. Yes. I can't just hold the door open for people giving an example through the way that I'm living and treating others is Mm -hmm. incredibly important, Mm -hmm. but also being willing to say what I believe and share that with others verbally matters. Also being willing to have awkward conversations with people. I think that's huge. Like I want to avoid that as much as I possibly Same. can. Yes. But there's so much of that where we are finite mortal beings trying to comprehend the eternal and then trying to like <laughs> explain to other people yeah, it's hard how we think about it. Yeah. That's super hard and you're going to mess up doing that. In my mind, better to have those conversations mm-hmm. imperfectly mm-hmm. than not. And that could be part of that example is that we're not perfect. Yeah. And that leads me to kind of our third point about what evangelism should look like. Mm. You guys have probably heard the phrase before. Evangelism is a beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Yes. I love that and so I, much. I think so that's good. a really good point because evangelism, when properly applied, puts us on equal footing. Mm-hmm. Yes. This is not something where I'm up on a soapbox, Mm. I'm looking down on other people and speaking condescendingly to them about how I am something that they're not. Right. Right. I have something that they don't have, but that's not the same as being something that they're not. I am just another beggar who is in need of Jesus, just like they are. I think it's really good news that Jesus, he's willing to save us and that he's willing to offer us his grace. And I just want to tell other people about what I've found. Yeah. That's a far different approach than saying, I'm going here, you're going there, unless you fix you. Yes. Much different message. Oh my gosh. Yes. Sarah Condon said this, I am only a desperate person who sees desperate people and desperately wants to point them to the one thing that has helped me mm-hmm. for better or worse. That's my qualifier for telling people about Jesus. Do they seem desperate? Right. And I think that's a really good point. Like we're all desperate people. Like we're all a mess. We're mm-hmm. all a hot mess. All that we're doing or being called to do is point people to the one that's helped us. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of it comes back to our own motives and our own heart. Mm -hmm. Like I think we can get off the rails if we're not approaching it from a place of humility. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can also get off the rails if we're approaching this from a spirit of timidity. Yeah. Right. And we're saying the reason that I don't want to talk about this or share with others is because I'm afraid that I'm going to be judged or ostracized. Or if the reason that we're being cautious is because we want to make sure that we're treating other people with respect and love, that's a really good check to have in our minds. That's something that we should be thinking about. If it's just to avoid the feeling of discomfort, if it's just to avoid (laughs) being in a position that puts ourselves out there a little bit and makes us vulnerable, that's probably less of a good reason to avoid it. Yeah. You got to check I'm, your motivations. I'm not saying that we're not going to yeah. fail in that area. I fail in that area every day because yeah. I feel incredibly vulnerable oh, yeah. and scared every time that I have to do this. Yeah. But I also am starting to recognize, I think that's not the reason not to do this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I can't use 
well, I'm just trying to be sensitive to others as a reason to excuse my own timidity. Right. At the very least, I need to be honest about why I'm having a hard time doing it. Right. Yeah, like yeah. it's not really about them. It's actually about me yeah. being, yeah. being scared of putting myself out there. Yeah. At the end of the day, it goes back to what we talked about evangelism being the work of the spirit yeah. for me to overcome that timidity, for me to overcome that fear. Mm-hmm. I need to first make sure that I am following after God mm-hmm. and that I'm seeking him with all of my heart. Right. And then asking him, to fill me with his spirit and help me do something that I don't have the strength to do on my own. Yeah. Like, I need you God to give me the strength to do this because I'm, I'm scared out of my mind to do it. Yeah. And it's okay to be honest about that and ask God to help mm. because without that, I can see from my past history on this. Yeah. I'm going to fail in this area along yeah, with sure. his guidance and his strength. And his help. I will look forward to seeing you both on the street corner yeah. t- tomorrow. That's right. I've got my half hundred dollar bill folded yeah. trash ready. Let's make uh, some waitresses angry. Oh, man. You know, I think one interesting point maybe that we didn't cover. Sometimes as Christians, we have this idea that we're the only ones trying to convert people to our point of view. Yeah. When if you actually think about it, that's not really how that works. Like yeah. everybody is constantly sharing their own ideas with others, receiving yep. input from other people. Yeah. There's this give and take kind of thing happening all the time. Yep. Maybe this doesn't have to be this always super explicit. I am now going to begin to share the gospel with you kind of <laughs> yeah. thing as much as it is just a continuation of that free flowing mm. ideas and thoughts from one person to another. Yeah. There are natural opportunities I think that exist for us to share Jesus in a very truthful and honest and open way with people, but in a way that doesn't feel completely forced and over the top. Yeah. And I love this quote from David Zoll along those lines. I'm convinced that pretty much everyone with a point of view is trying to convert you. The only question is what they're trying to convert you to. And is there any grace involved? Thanks for listening to the Real Talk podcast from Real FM. Catch Afternoons with Anson and Kara live every weekday on Real FM Radio. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent or reflect the views of John Brown University, KLRC Radio, or Real FM.